The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that this morning we have confidence that it was Jesus who cleansed us of our sins once and for all, that we can truly bring you praises um, and, and just really sing of your holiness and your righteousness because of the work of Christ. Um, I pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation this morning and that we would give you all the glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. I hope that you're having a good weekend. I hope that you did something yesterday for 4th of July. It's such a strange time, isn't it? But uh, anyway, I hope that you are having a great weekend, and I'm really glad that you're here with us today. I'm glad to be here with you. We're going to be in Psalm 51, and today we're going to conclude our sermon series in the book of Psalms. And one of the things that we want to talk about really is where do we go from here and what to do with all the different things that we learned about? And we're going to talk about confession today. And that's something that we get a great example of in Psalm 51. Today, we learn that God is worthy of our confession, that this is part of our act of worship to Him. We all do things that are wrong. Did you know that? We all do, every one of us. And sometimes we're just foolish, but sometimes it's deliberate. And sometimes we're just plain wrong about something. Earlier this week, I was sitting outside with Christy and uh, my boys and we're in the backyard. And this crazy thing is Johnny, my youngest, he's eight. He says to me, I think it's going to rain. And I said, it's not going to rain. Don't worry about it. And uh, Christy says to me, well, I think maybe we should put the chair cushions in just in case it rains. I said, it's not going to rain. I mean, this is June. It doesn't rain at all in June in San Diego. In fact, the average rainfall in June, there's more water droplets coming out of my mouth right now than happened in all of June in San Diego. And I know that because I'm an immunologist now, just like all of you and all of your friends on Facebook. We understand how this works. Anyway, so we didn't put the cushions away. Now, the thing about this that's a little bit extra complicated is Christy 
likes to, he's been excited about having a box outside where we can put these cushions. You know, the cushions is just going outdoor furniture. And uh, she just got one last weekend and she ordered it, it was delivered and she built it all by herself. I didn't help at all. She put it together, she got the cushions in there, she brought out a couple of cushions so we could sit outside. She was excited to use it for the very purpose of keeping those cushions out of the rain. And I said, nah, it's not gonna rain. Early in the next morning, it's pouring rain at our house. I mean, the rain is just coming down. I'm already awake and I hear it. And I kind of look over at Christy and she smiles at me and she points out the window like this. She goes, what's that noise? I said, it's raining. And then Johnny comes running in the room. It's like six in the morning. Daddy, it's raining. I know. And I have to do the walk of shame outside to my backyard in my pajamas. It's pouring rain to get those cushions out and then find a, a place in the shade so that they will dry out. And uh, several times that day, I had to confess my sin. All I had to do was listen to my wife and her wisdom. My wife is always wise about those things. I don't know why I don't listen. And apparently my youngest son has that same wisdom. We don't like it. We don't like to confess that we're wrong. We don't like to be wrong, but we are. And lots of times it's a lot more serious than that. Well, in the book of Psalms, we have a whole lot of different confession going on. And a lot of it is from David. David had a lot to confess. But this isn't easy for a lot of us. Sometimes we just refuse. We refuse to acknowledge that we're wrong on simple things or even big things. We refuse to acknowledge our behaviors. We refuse to acknowledge our motives. Sometimes we acknowledge that, or we don't wanna even acknowledge what we did is sin at all. We just try to look at the scripture and say, well, this isn't sin and try to piece together from this verse or that verse or this idea, our idea that what we did isn't sin. And we do whatever we can to not confess our sins. That causes us great trouble. I've seen people do it when it's plain as day that they are guilty of something. I used to work for a company, uh, I won't mention the name of it, but they sold televisions and radios and all of that stuff. It's an electronics company, it was called Circuit Something. And uh, they're out of business now, thanks to Best Buy. Well, we were missing video cameras. We had to do inventory every single morning. And every day there was another video camera missing from inventory that hadn't been sold. And this is before the time where there are cameras everywhere and we just didn't have that. So we actually had these, there used to be video cameras that you had to put a little tape in and uh, that's what we sold. And we put a bunch of those videotapes in the warehouse just to see how these cameras are missing. And we saw a guy, we saw a guy on the film and what he was doing was he would have a friend buy a dryer, you know, like a washer and dryer, it was a big dryer. And when he was rolling the dryer out to deliver to them, he would take some video cameras and put it inside the dryer, close the door, deliver the dryer. The friend would go home, take the video cameras out of the dryer and then return the dryer to get his money back and the video cameras are gone. Well, we actually got all of this on film. It's just him, it's plain as day him. And we show it to him and we go, and he goes, that's not me, I didn't do that. It's, it was astounding, we didn't even know what to say. Obviously, he didn't have that job anymore after that. But for some of us, we just don't want to admit it, even when it's plain as day, that we are wrong, that we've done something wrong. He would not agree with us that he was a thief. He just completely didn't want to agree. But here's the thing about confession. That's what confession is. It's an agreement. Confession is an agreement. Essentially, true confession is this. It's an agreement about what is already true. It's just an agreement about the facts of a situation. When you confess your sin to God, you are agreeing with him that it is in fact sin and that you need to repent. And when you are acknowledging something that God already knows to be true, when we confess our sins, we're just admitting what is true. We're just agreeing with God. That's what it is. And when you confess your faith to God, you're agreeing with him about all kinds of things. 
maybe that you've sinned and that you need a savior. And not maybe, but mainly, this is what it is, that you've sinned and you need a savior, that Jesus is that savior, that he died for you, that he rose from the grave and whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. That's our faith. That's why we call it a confession of faith. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified and it is with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, you confess what is true. When you confess your faith in Jesus, you're confessing what is already true, that he died for you, that he is the savior. God is worthy of our confession because God is everything that is true and he knows everything about us. When we talk about confession of our sin, we are dealing with something here. We're dealing with something very, very important. And somewhere in the midst of all of that is our guilt and or our lack of guilt where there ought to be guilt. One writer suggests this, that guilt is something that is kind of like an iceberg. There is so much above the surface and we call that depression or boredom or anxiety or anger, a whole bunch of other certain conditions. And all of these words that we use, there's truth to them. But if you go down and you look underneath the surface at that iceberg, you're going to find a conscience on fire very often, it's guilt. Now, if you suffer from some of those things, it's not always about guilt, but whatever guilt you have, it is making it worse. It's part of it. And some people struggle with anger. And when, when you're guilty and you're struggling with anger, you just wanna be mad at somebody else for something that they've done so that you don't have to look bad or you can look better with them. It's embarrassment at its core, right? And you are so embarrassed, but you don't wanna confess that you're embarrassed, which is true. So you have to blame somebody else. That's a big part of a lot of our anger. Some of us have anxiety and fear, a fear of being found out. That's causing anxiety, a fear of the consequence for our actions or our, or our inaction in different cases. There's a lot of guilt there. Jealousy. I might mess up, but it's because everyone else is better than me. Everybody else has something more than I have. So it's not really my fault. It's their fault. We have all kinds of other sins maybe in our life. And sometimes we say to ourselves, you know what, I'm already messed up. I might as well just keep messing up. And it becomes a very destructive attitude with depression. Sometimes we're down in the dumps because of what we actually did and we don't wanna talk about it. And the relief for some of our depression is to be able to confess it, to agree with what is already true. There is tremendous relief in all of these things and it worsens those things. And it can even drive us literally crazy when we refuse to acknowledge our guilt. And guilt isn't always the reason for these things, but it's often a very big part of it. How do you deal with a guilty conscience? Are you defensive? Do you deny involvement? Do you blame others? How do you deal with it when you're guilty? Do you try to justify your actions? Do you say the devil made me do it? The coronavirus made me do it? Maybe Twitter made me do it? Somebody made me do it. Do you hide or go into isolation? There's a lot of people that that's how we deal with guilt. They just disappear. They disappear when they're guilty. Are you one of those people? Do you know any of those people? Where'd they go? Why are they gone? Well, they're guilty of something and they don't wanna confess. They don't wanna agree with what is true. And some of us are just further destructive to ourselves when we won't confess. Friends, in our lives, the answer to moving forward, the answer if we're stuck somewhere, the answer to making things better is very often in confession. The answer, the way forward, the path of wisdom is to know this, that God is worthy of our confession and we need to do it. And yes, the person that I sinned against is worthy of my confession too. And for the restoration of that relationship, I need to do that. But this chapter here in 51 is about confessing our sin to the Lord.
Because our confession, our agreement with God, it's important because it has everything to do with the mission that God has given us. We see all of this in Psalm 51. There's an example of sin that we see in the scriptures and David is talking about that, the sin in his own life. At the very beginning of the Psalm, sometimes in your Bibles, you might notice that there's this little place up here that's not really a verse. We talked about this earlier in the series, but it is part of the scripture. It's in the Hebrew language. It's, the, it's a preface or a title. It's, it's instruction to the music director since this is a song. And sometimes it's a description of what this song is really about. And here it's very specific in Psalm 51. It says, for the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Let's sing about that. That's what is going on here. And that's what this confession here is about. You know, in a lot of the biblical narrative, when you study about David, he is portrayed as heroic. He's a heroic figure. He is a fearless warrior. He's a beloved friend, a loyal servant. He's an anointed king. He's a patriarch of the messianic dynasty, a man after God's own heart, all these great things. But when you're reading your Bible, when you get into 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we encounter a very different David, a David with a very dark side. You know, David was so popular before he was even king. The prior king, Saul, was jealous and tried to kill him. David fled and he lived as an outlaw and he was always being hunted. But even during this time, he gathered to himself during that period what the Bible calls his mighty men. These men were mighty warriors and they were completely loyal to David. Guys, how many of you have a bunch of mighty men that follow you around? I do. No, not really. I mean, that's an amazing thing to have mighty men. Who's got mighty men? David does. That's incredible. After David became king, when the enemies of, Israel's attacked, of Israel attacked Israel to try to invade and take it over, David was forced to flee into the wilderness again and he took his mighty men with him again. And see, these men were so important and David owed them his life. They protected him. They, these guys would do anything for David. There's one story where three of these mighty men fought through the Philistine lines just to bring David some water from his well inside the gate of Bethlehem. And that's a lot of loyalty to risk your life to bring the guy a cup of water from a certain well. That's how loyal they were to this guy. They were loyal, they were fierce, they were brave, they would do anything for David and David owed them his life. There were 37 of these mighty men, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 24. And of these men who were fierce and loyal and dear servants of David, one of them was named Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. So at one particular time, David sends out his army, but this time for whatever reason, David doesn't go. And he's at his home, at the palace, and he looks out and he sees on another rooftop, he sees a woman bathing and he sends for her. He lusts after her. And when he did, he discovered that this woman was named Bathsheba, the wife of his old friend and mighty man, Uriah. This was a man who was a faithful and trusted servant, but it didn't matter to David in his heart. He was the king and he wanted her more than anything and he took her and he took her to bed with him. He had an affair with her and she got pregnant. This gets David into some trouble, so he starts to cover it up. He doesn't want anybody to know. And so what he does is he orders Uriah home. Hey, Uriah, come on home. And he says to Uriah, hey, go down to your house, wash your feet, spend some time with your wife, if you know what I mean. And Uriah says, you know what? I appreciate that, but no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm a man of honor and integrity. And you know what? Right now, there are so many others on our side who are fighting and dying. Uh, I'm not gonna do that. And what he does is he just spends the night in the doorway of the palace. He doesn't go home. 
Well, David even tries again, and this time he invites Uriah in, they have a nice dinner, and David deliberately gets him a little drunk and says, okay, now go home to your wife. And Uriah still has enough with him to say, you know what, I'm not gonna do that, not while our men are fighting and dying, I can't, I can't do that. Well, then what David does is he decides to do something else. He sends Uriah back to the battle, only this time he sends him with a note. And the note says, and it's to the commander of the army, it says, put him in the front. Essentially what it says is, let him die in the battle. And that's what happens. Uriah dies in the battle. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And you know what it appears to be at that moment is the perfect cover-up. No one's going to know. This doesn't happen over a period, of, a long period of time. And uh, Bathsheba is going to have a baby, but everyone's going to assume it's David's baby because they got married. And uh, this seems like it's a really good deal. Or if they assume it's Uriah's baby, he's dead. He can't tell the story. But you know what happens? David's thinking that nobody ever needs to know. Everything's cool. It'll be fine. But at the very end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, the very last sentence, it says, but the thing that David did has displeased the Lord. God knows. God knows everything. He knows our motives. He knows our schemes. We can't fool him. We try, but we can't. Almost a year goes by in this story, and then David sends a guy named Nathan to David to confront him with his sin. And Nathan comes into him, and he tells a story. He says, King, you need to be aware of this. He says, there are two men in your kingdom. One is a very rich man, and he has so many cattle and so many flocks that you can't even count them. And on the other hand, there's another man. He's very, very poor. In fact, he only has one animal, a little lamb. This lamb is like the man's dear daughter. She eats from his plate and she sleeps in his arms. Well, what you need to know is that recently this rich man was entertaining a traveler from out of town and he decided that he needed to give a great feast for this traveler. But you know what this rich man did? Instead of going to his own flock and picking one of his animals, he took this poor man's sheep and he killed it and he fed it to his guest. What do you think of that, David? Well, David was outraged at this incredible injustice. Who did that? I wanna know who did that. And Nathan responded, you did. You did with Bathsheba. And the other man is Uriah. Suddenly a mirror was held up to David's face, something he thought he had gotten away with. He hadn't because God knows. And he looked into it and he saw the ugliest thing he'd ever seen, the ugliest part of himself. Could you imagine what you would ask yourself if that is you? and suddenly you're confronted with that kind of sin. Imagine the guilt, imagine the shame, imagine the self-hatred, what would you say? Some of you go through terrible things because you've done really bad things. How do you get through that? Well, David's gonna show us something. Here he was exposed, he's guilty, and you could imagine he might even say, how can I continue to lead God's people? How could I possibly be used by God? I'm done as king of Israel, I'm done as a husband, I'm done as a follower of God. Well, how does David move from this place to then being restored and being a great leader and follower of God? It does happen. It doesn't happen without great consequences. David suffered greatly because of this sin. And we read about that through the scriptures. But David is forgiven and restored. And it begins because he's able to confess and agree with God about the truth of the situation the truth of what he did, the truth about what his motives were. And he doesn't make any excuses. And we see that confession in Psalm 51. Look what he does. The first thing he does is he makes no excuses and he asks for mercy. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Notice he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, yeah, but she tempted me, or yeah, but imagine the shame on my family if this were to get out. Imagine how hard it's gonna be for me to be king if people know about this. God, let's, let's just forget about this. Let's just let this slide. He doesn't do that. Instead, he just agrees with God. He gives no excuses. He knows they don't work. It's always better to say nothing than to give a lame excuse. Did you know that? David understands this. Instead, what he does is he asks for mercy because he knows something about God. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that this is the character of God. He acknowledges that God is right and holy in the next part in verse four. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. He agrees with God that he is a sinner. And he says, God, you are right. And he doesn't offer a yeah, but he just says, I'm a sinner. And not just that he sinned, but he says, you know what? And I am sinful. He confesses something else that God desires for the sinful to learn wisdom and to be faithful. He understands what we are called to do and called to be. In verse seven, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide, from, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the, to your, to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He says, cleanse me with hyssop. And the implication there is he understands how dirty his sin is. Hyssop is what they used to try to clean lepers. Lepers were people who couldn't be fixed until Jesus came around and they were just sent away from everybody. And hyssop was used to treat them. He says, I am just like that. I should be sent away. Help me be clean. Wash me so I will be whiter than snow. He knows something about God. He knows that God can change him and restore him. He also knows that God does this supernaturally, that he's gonna rely on God and his Holy Spirit. He says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He knows that he can't do this on his own, that as powerful and magnificent that he is, that God is the one who brings this restoration, who cleanses his heart. That's a pretty bold and humble thing to understand for a king. He understands this. David knows that the world doesn't revolve around him and so then he refocuses on mission. Verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Let me stop there for a second. Have you thought about this before? When you accept Christ as your Savior, why doesn't God just take you right to heaven? Why not just go there? I mean, you'll never have fellowship the way on earth as you will in heaven. You'll never be able to worship as good here as you will in heaven. All the things that you want to do, you're not going to be able to do as well here as in heaven. Why doesn't God just take you right up to him? It's because God has a plan for your life that has to do with his plan. He's invited us into his divine plan. The interesting thing is, is that there's really only two things that you can do on earth in your life here that you won't be able to do in heaven. One of them is sin. The other one is tell people about Jesus. Which do you think you're called to do? Which do you think is part of God's plan for your life? You see, you have a job to do. David knew that he had a job to do, a particular calling. 
And note in verse 13, he uses the word then. It's after he's confessed, after he has agreed with God about his sin and about his sinful nature and all of those things, he then immediately moves into then, you can use me, Lord, to tell the story of your mercy to transgressors. I mean, think about it. He's writing this down for us to read about the worst thing imaginable that he did. And he's using it to glorify God and to benefit us today. Imagine for 3,000 years, people have been blessed by Psalm 51. People who have been hopeless in their sin, people who feel like God can't forgive, people who feel like they just can't confess or can't admit. David realizes that God has a plan for me and part of that plan is for me to confess my sin to the Lord and let people know how merciful God is. This is part of his restoration. This is part of our restoration with God to know that God has a plan for us and he wants to use us. And it begins with the confession of our sin with him. This is important for us as the church. The church will not impact our culture until we're able to confess our own sins. Do you know this? This is a problem for the church. Our effective witness as a church, not just our church, but the capital C church in our country and around the world is hindered by our unconfessed sin. It's hindered when we try to cover it up, when we try to make excuses for whatever it is. In fact, our witness is greatest when we do confess our sin. When we say to the world, yeah, we're sinners and we've done wrong just like everybody else, but we have a savior and a free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. See, people in the world, they see when we really don't agree with God. They see when we don't really confess, they know we don't really agree because we say a certain thing about God, we say certain things are wrong, but if our life is different, if our life doesn't reflect that, they know we don't agree with what we're saying. And there's kind of this intellectual hypocrisy that we have. That's why people say, why don't you go to church? They say, oh, it's full of hypocrites. It's not really full of hypocrites, but there are some who make a pretty bad testimony of the entire faith because it doesn't seem by their life and it doesn't seem sometimes by the church as a whole or how it's seen or portrayed, even if it's unfair in our culture, it doesn't seem like we agree with what we're preaching. You see, for us, confession has a lot more to do with just between us and God. It's also us and the mission that God has given us. My friends, people see this. They see it in our politics. They see it on what we post on Facebook, how we are in business, how we are in our marriages. We have a lot to confess when we don't get right. And that's part of understanding who we are called to be. See, those who are seeking God, they're not looking for perfection. Some people aren't seeking God. They're just seeking to criticize. But a lot of people that you know are genuinely seeking truth. They're seeking God. And they know you and they want to know what you have. And when they see that you are confessing your sin, that you acknowledge that you're not perfect, it says an awful lot to them that you agree with what you read in Scripture, that you agree with what the Lord says, the one who you worship and celebrate. You see, we have a mission that's a lot bigger than just our sin. That's why confession is so critical to mission because it's agreement with God. David continues, and in this confession, he praises God, verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. O God, you who are God, my savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. There is always worship in every circumstance. There is never a time when we do not worship God. And you know, when you agree with God and you understand that he sits on a throne of grace, that he is merciful, worship him. And David takes that time to acknowledge who God is and worship him because of his mercy and his grace, even as he confesses. 
He remembers that God wants a relationship and not simply religion. Look at verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in the burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, our religious acts, they're no good when we don't really agree with the one that we're offering them to. Our worship to God is not really very good when, when we don't really agree with God, when he knows we can't really worship him if we don't really agree with him. Worship is great when we're on the same page as the Lord. Worship is great when we have confessed our sins to God and we know about his grace and his mercy and we are in agreement with who we are and what we are called to do. Worship is great. This is the kind of worship we should have. Let me ask you something. Is this how we confess? Is this how you confess? There's an example here to the world for us. Many years ago, there was a famous correspondence in the London Times, a long time ago, but it's still pretty profound. And it was under the subject, what is wrong with the world today? You ever ask yourself that? My 11-year-old has asked that question. Dad, what is wrong with the world today? He already understands it's a mess. Well, the writer researched and reported on the various moral and social ills that were plaguing the world and wrote an article and asked for people to write in their suggestion of what is wrong with the world. And the best letter came from a theologian at the time named G.K. Chesterton. And he said this, he said, Dear Editor, what is wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. That was it. And it's pretty profound. And when, he, when you think about that, you know, the Bible is not here to say, oh, look how much worse David's sins are than, you, than yours. I mean, we could stand here today and go, you're not as bad as David. We're not as bad as David, probably. But that's not what the Bible is here to say. No, the Bible is here to say that even a great man, an excellent poet, an athlete, a great warrior, a king, I mean, David, the one who's the man after God's own heart, that even David is capable of adultery, lying, stealing, killing, hiding it, all of these things. And if you don't think you are, you're missing the point. If you don't think that I am, or I don't think that I am, or we don't think that we're capable of these things, we're not getting it. You see, the source of all of the world's problem is sin. It is, it's not a popular word today, but it is. And the source of your problem and mine is sin. Sin that I've done, sin that other people have done to me, sin that is out there. All the stuff that we're seeing on the news that is so terrible, it's sin. This is what the scriptures teach. And if we think that we are not part of the problem, we deceive ourselves. Even as individuals, if we think we're not contributing, we're deceiving ourselves. A main message of the Bible is that sin is horrible and it's rooted so deeply in the heart of every one of us that even the best people like King David are capable of the worst deeds. David recognizes this and he owns it. He even admits in verse five that he was sinful at birth. He says, there's a long history of sin in my life. It didn't just creep, on to, creep up to me one day when I got tempted. He says, it's been there. It's part of who I am. A key message for the church is this, is while you sin, we are no longer slaves to that. Jesus died for us and he has forgiven us. It's why we're called saints. It's why we're called saints now, even though we still struggle with sin. This Psalm is a reminder that God does not wanna just leave us there in our sin trying to deal with it. 
I mean, think about it. What could he have done? God could have just wiped out David. Just said, you're done, killed him. He could have just ignored David. Well, forget you, David, I'm gonna get another king. You can just go on your way. Instead, in love, God sends Nathan to David to rebuke him. And Nathan's rebuke did something incredible. It drew David back to the unfailing love of God. It drew David back to the right place. It smacked him on the head as the good shepherd does and moved him to the right place where he can be used by God to do tremendous things. In the Psalm, David reveals the worthiness of God of, you know, of our confession and how important it is because we have a mission that we are to be an example of God's grace in the world and continuing in our confession of our sin to the Lord is part of our growth and humility, but it's also vital to our mission. See, being a Christian is not about the practice of religion. It's about an internal transformation leading to righteous living that reflects the mercy and salvation of the living God. And we aren't asked to do this by ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit who helps us with it. Confession is how we work with God to have this pure heart so that we are better at this mission. This is why confession matters. This is why God is worthy of your confession because your mission matters. David understood that his mission mattered. Some takeaways for today are these. Number one, be honest with God. He already knows your sin. He already knows your motives. Don't try to work around it. Try to manipulate it. Try to say, yeah, but he already knows. He knows better than you do what your motives were, what your thinking was, all of that stuff. Just be honest and know this. A merciful God invites us to be honest with him and to confess to him. And that's how we find restoration in our relationship with him. The story I heard about uh, somebody who went to college and they were embarrassed because their clothes were dirty and they'd go down the laundry in the dorm and they would take a sweatshirt and put all their dirty clothes inside the sweatshirt and then tie up the sweatshirt. They didn't want to get them out because they're so dirty. So they'd toss them in the washing machine in the sweatshirt. Washing machine would run and run and then they'd take out this ball of wet stuff and then throw it in the dryer and it would run. But then when that person got back to their dorm and opened it up, they found out that the inside laundry hadn't been cleaned at all. That it just wasn't really true, that they were hiding their dirt. You know what, with the Lord, you don't have to do that. Don't hide it. Don't wrap it up in something else. Just confess and you will find mercy. You will find restoration. Confession means to agree or to say the same thing. Be in agreement with God. Agree with God about your sin and then repent and turn away from the sin. You know, not only was David honest in his sin, he confessed it for the evil that it is. Are you willing to agree with God about the evil of your sin? And will you confess it to him? The existence of Psalm 51 is here to show us that David came face to face with the disparity between his heart and the heart of God and how those things weren't working together. He acknowledged his guilt and he turned to God. And this might be one of the most significant things about Psalm 51 is our natural reaction as human beings since the very beginning, since Eden, is to run and hide, to deny, to make excuses, to blame other people. This isn't how we do it. Here David acknowledges his sin and he turns towards God because he recognizes not only that God is holy, but God is merciful and also that God has a plan. Sin is definitely destructive and we have consequences for it, but confession is a gift from God, an opportunity to see things restored, even redeemed. So we're to be repentant, secondly. God desires the worship of inner transformation, not external ritual. In verse 16, it says, do, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered at your altar. You see, we have a problem sometimes with cultural Christianity where it's outward acts. We go to church, we worship, we read our Bible, we carry it with us, we pray and we pray in public. And we're not talking about internal transformation, which is what God wants. And you know what? The world notices this. This is why repentance matters, that we confess and then we repent. We ask God to give us this pure heart. The goal of heart transformation comes before the goal of behavior modification. You can't really change your behavior if you don't change your heart, you can't. Behavior needs to change for sure, but it happens first in the heart. And repentance is where this is at. You know, David's not asking for a second chance or a reprieve. He doesn't say, oh God, give me a second chance. And he knows that wouldn't do any good because he knows it would just erupt, his sin would just erupt in another way. He knows something about us. He knows something about what God says about us. That we are not mistakers who need a second chance. We are sinners who need a savior. It's a big difference between those two. So what does he ask for? He doesn't ask for a reprieve. In verse 10, he says, I want you to create in me a clean heart. He says, I'm asking you to do it. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Supernaturally, change me. A Christian knows that one more chance isn't what's, what's going to help. I'll just find some other way to blow it. I need a new heart. Create in me a clean heart. He's actually asking for new birth. When he says, create in me a, pre -heart, a, a pure heart, he's asking the Holy Spirit to do it, to be changed supernaturally. God wants to do this with you. You know why Galatians is called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your own hard work and diligence? because the Holy Spirit wants to supernaturally change you, to help you develop in love and peace and goodness and self-control and all of those things. This is what God does. You see, everything that God was and did for David, God is and does for us through Jesus Christ. On the cross, God demonstrated both his holiness and his mercy. So it is through the sacrifice of Jesus that we, like David, can come to God and receive this restoration. 1 John 1, 7 and 9, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, we find something out here about God's mercy too. It's too good to keep to ourself. The last takeaway is this, share with others the good news of God's mercy. That's our mission. In verse 13, David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David's knowledge that his sin and God's, his sin and God's mercy compels him to tell other sinners to encourage them about the merciful God that he knows. He responded to God's mercy by seeking to share it with others who need it too. David had his purpose restored. He recognized that God called him to a unique purpose. He was anointed to a special position to lead God's people on their mission to bless the world. But his sin robbed him of his ability to fulfill that calling. So in praying for restoration and purity and innocence and strength and relationship and joy to be restored, David is praying not only for himself, but all the people that he is meant to impact, all of the people who know him, who he is called to lead. He understands that his sin is not just about himself, but it's about the mission that God gave him for other people. We need to see that because our own sin is not just an isolated event. It's something that affects others. 
Repentance is never about just an individual, but about all those people that we're called to bless. When you read through Psalm 51, I would ask you to read through it today and apply it to yourself in prayer and confess your sin. And if you don't think you have any sin, ask your spouse. They'll let you know. If you're not married, ask a roommate, ask a friend, ask a coworker. I promise you, you do have sin. And you know, the people who you are called to bless, not the stranger on the street or somebody you happen to run into, but the people that are in your relational world, I like to call your oikos, those people that you interact with on a regular basis, they know your sin. They know if you're a gossip. They know if you have an anger problem. They know if you're selfish. They know if you're a cheater. They know if you represent Christ or not. They are your mission. This is why we confess and agree with God so that those people will see that we agree with God and the message that we are sharing with them is true. The message that we are sharing with them is something that we truly believe. These people, they don't need to see you as perfect. They need to see you agree with God about what sin is, about what is wrong and what is right, especially about your own sin before you judge theirs. It's important. It's important for the mission. They need you to offer the same message of grace and mercy, not because you just know it academically, but because you've experienced it in your own life. This is our mission. And you know, the result of these things is a changed life. The result of our confession is a better marriage, better relationships with our friends, with our kids, less negativity, better attitude at work. We become better listeners. We understand people better. We're more compassionate, more empathetic, more generous. All of those things are rooted in our ability to confess and agree with God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that what we want? Well, this is a powerful witness, all of these things in a world that is desperate to figure this out. We have the answer when we agree with God when we confess that our faith is true in Jesus Christ. So read through Psalm 51 and pray through it and know that God is worthy of your confession. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word and, and for all of us, Lord, we all struggle with different things. I pray that today we would take our sins to you and confess them, agree with you that they are sins, agree with you about our motives, about the things that are in our heart that aren't right, and God, we ask for an understanding of your mercy. And we ask, Lord, that we would be in agreement with you about what is already true and that you would give us great peace. Lord, create in us a, a clean heart, a pure heart. Cleanse us with these things, not just for our own benefit, for the benef but for the benefit of the mission that you've given us, for the benefit of those people who are around us who need to see the love of Christ experientially as well as understanding what it means, but they need to see it in us. God, help us to feel that and help us to know that. Give us the ability to confess, to do so joyfully, to worship you in the midst of it, and to move forward in this life knowing that you're changing us supernaturally to be more like Jesus, to be on mission with him, and that your mercy is real. And like David, even if we've done terrible things, we can move on and be used by you to do great things in your name. Lord, I pray that that is a, a mark of who we are as a church and the, for the greater church in our country and the world, that people would see your glory through our confession and the way we are able to live in repentance and professing our faith in you. We thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. 
If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.